Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. In the 70s, Pelé was so famous, I would say that there were only two other people in the world as a personality who could equal him. And one was Frank Sinatra, and one is Muhammad Ali. That's how huge Pelé was. My opinion, way bigger than David Beckham. Way bigger. He was a world cultural icon at that point. Hey, it's Sebastian Alvarado. Welcome to Coffee and Football. After a break, I'm super excited to now be back with some new episodes and a couple of cool concepts that will be introduced over the next few months. For those of you who are new to the show, this is a conversation, as you can guess, over coffee, where I sit with some of the most interesting and influential profiles in the game to learn a bit about who they are and how they got to the position they're in. Another update, this show is now presented by Eleven New York, a New York City-based brand and concept that creates refined athletic wear and original content for those of you with an eye for taste and quality. I am a partner in the company, so even more reason to go and check it out at 11newyork.com. Alrighty, enough about that, and let's get to today's show. In this episode, my guest is Jim Trecker. He is one of the very top communications and public relations professionals in U.S. soccer history. He was at the New York Cosmos during the Pele era with the Washington Diplomats when John Cruyff was there. And then he worked at the U.S. Soccer Federation throughout the 90s. And he was one of the very key players of that organizing committee of the 1994 World Cup. After a successful bid and World Cup, he moved on to work for the Japanese Federation, where he worked on the 2002 World Cup bid. He also worked on the 2010 and 2022 bids. He's a fountain of knowledge and an amazing storyteller with a trajectory that spans over four decades. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Jim Trecker. It's truly a pleasure to meet you for the first time, actually. I've come across your name quite a few times in the past. A very pleasant moment to, to get to know you here. A great uh, pleasure is all mine, I assure you. I've been lucky to be in a, 
a few prominent moments in the course of my career, so maybe that's where you came across my name, but I assure you it's just me. <laughs> um, we're here today on a crisp uh, New York morning. First and foremost, welcome to Coffee and Football. Thank you. Um, my first question, since the theme is coffee and football, is how do you typically drink your coffee? Straight black. I need the full shot of caffeine every morning. I'm a, I am a morning person. I don't do so well in the afternoons, but a little bit of coffee in the morning, I'm raring to go. Do you uh, make it yourself? My wife and I make a, um, we, we drink an organic coffee blend. We grind it fresh every morning and uh, just use a simple drip procedure and a little individual cup at a time. And uh, that gets us on our way. I have two, she has one, and we are ready to go. Fantastic. Yeah. I have to do the two in the morning. I make them pretty strong, as I'm sure you can you can tell here. Well, the first one I have always leaves me uh, asking for more, so uh, I'm I'm at two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how are you doing these days? What do you um What do you do to to keep yourself busy? Oh boy, people. Uh, when I retired from traditional steady employment, a lot of people said, "What are you going to do with yourself?" Oh my God, you'll you'll go crazy. You're such a You've been active and you do things and so forth. And that has not been the case. I am actually, as we sit here today, pondering what it will be like actually to retire and not have things to do. I've been working for the last uh, two years now on uh, the new Soccer Hall of Fame project down in Frisco, Texas. And if you haven't heard of Frisco, Texas, it's essentially a, a suburb of Dallas. It's where FC Dallas plays and where the Toyota Stadium is. So I have been... Uh, acting. Uh, it's not official, but I'm going to call it a quasi-historian and archivist for the new Hall of Fame and have gone through the um, the archives, which are in storage from the uh, former Hall of Fame when it closed. That has been a, um, a great, fun, thrilling task, but pretty time-consuming, too. It's a, it's a big task. This is a huge, huge project. The Hall of Fame is going to be spectacular. So there's not a day that goes by that I don't have four or five hours worth of work on this thing, and I'm kind of wondering, how the heck did you... Did you actually retire? And I think the answer is no. Well, you're obviously involved in, in doing things that you really love, which you've been doing for quite a few years now. Well, I, I think that... I think the one thing that hasn't perhaps been done very well in the sport of soccer in this country, I don't, I don't blame anybody, just the, the, the evolution of the sport, is I, I don't believe we've talked about or preserved or heralded our history enough. And part of the, part of the Hall of Fame exercise on my, I, I think it's charitable to say I'm an older gentleman and I've had to kind of carry the, uh, carry the ball a bit. On the history side, uh, many people in the game nowadays, and, and God love them, I'm glad there's millions of people involved in the game, that they don't realize that there was actually vibrant football, incredibly good football, long before 1994, long before Caligari's shot of 1989. And I've, I feel a little bit <clears throat> of a mission as I begin to fade away into the, into the, into the dusk. Uh, to, to try to preserve some of that and to and to to talk about it, to get the Hall of Fame, and we, and we will. There will be substantial exhibits on the history of the game. But I'm working real hard to try to, to make make sure that the history is is also front and center. What would the NFL be if we didn't talk at times about George Hallis and the automobile shop where the NFL was born? Where would we be without Babe Ruth and so forth? Well, soccer has all of those people. I just think we need to do a better job of talking about them. Uh, 
soccer started here in, in the United States in roughly the same era as baseball did. But no one would know that. And so I think some of us gray-haired types are uh, very dedicated to making sure people do know that a little bit. What goes through your mind when they talk about Jim Trecker that would say, you know, he is one of the most prominent media and public relations professionals in U.S. soccer history? I would say that it's because if people say that, I thank them. All I ever did was try to be a, a good, truthful public relations agent, a window through which uh, media could speak to the team and through which the team could speak to the media. And I'd say that I've been extremely lucky, extremely lucky. Maybe it's nothing I ever did myself. Just I was in the right place at the right time, and I, have, I really have no other way uh, to say it. I never set out on this career path. I went to college. I went to Columbia, and I entered college wanting to major in French and become a professor of French because at one time I could speak French, and I loved the language. That didn't really work out. By the time I was a sophomore, I realized I really didn't want to read medieval French poetry, which you had to do. So I ended up by dumb luck, blind luck, walking into the sports information department at Columbia in 1964. And the director then, a gentleman named Phil Burke, I had been a sports writer as a teenager uh, in Hartford, Connecticut, at the Hartford Current. So I was not completely unaware of the, of the discipline. Phil Burke asked me one question, when can you start? So as a sophomore in college, I started working in the sports information department and never, ever planned any sort of a career path. Unlike what I think a lot of younger people do nowadays is they, I, I'm going to, I want to be a lawyer. I'm going to get an MBA. I had no idea what I was going to do when I got out of college. This just, it literally just happened. And I was extremely lucky. Maybe I impressed somebody along the way. I don't know. But I got, I got a job here and there, and, and um, it, it just, just sort of happened. I sort of got in the stream, and, and, and now it's all the way down to here today. Where did your curiosity come from? I came, from, I came out of a family that was um, very academically oriented. My father was a, a professor of social work. He was the dean at the University of Connecticut. School of Social Work, he basically founded the, established the place. And our household always had a very broad view of things, aware of things. It was a household that read the New York Times and so forth. It, it was just part of the, the setting that I grew up in. I'm not sure that there is a, a particular moment. I was, uh, as a, as a kid, I was very captivated by two events. Um, I remember them very clearly. I'm not sure what it says about me, but I remember the coronation of Queen Elizabeth being on TV in this country. Now, I hadn't traveled at that point. I was a little kid. I was eight years old. But that was a real aha moment. Look at this place, this, uh, I guess I shouldn't say this England, take that line out of Shakespeare. But uh, it was very eye-opening, and I wanted to see that stuff. And then, of course, the World Cup final of 1966, which uh, was on, on television here, that completely converted me into wanting to see more of the world and, and uh, the soccer thing. That's, uh, this is pretty good. I was, only, I was uh, 21 at that time. I was much younger at the time of the coronation. But I'd say those are, those are our, two, our two seminal events that, that 
that made my eyes stay permanently open to wanting to know more about everything I could in the world. And soccer has given me that. Soccer has given, I didn't do it. Soccer has given me that. Soccer is what got me to Malaysia. Soccer has gotten me to Japan. Soccer has gotten me to Africa. Soccer has gotten me to just about every country in, in Europe, Eastern and Western, throughout South America. It's just the, it's not really the glamour of the sport. It's the excitement and the culture and meeting other people from around the world and you're unified by the one thing. And it's not, in my career, it hasn't just been a business thing. It's not like a bunch of business guys getting together where maybe they're united by whatever electronics they make or whatever thing they manufacture. And boy, we're all in the same room. We're all the same type of guys. It wasn't like that at all. It was a much more heartfelt type of thing. When you can be in Uruguay in 1995, when Uruguay won the Copa America championship, and you can be on the streets with a million people in downtown Montevideo, and I don't speak Spanish adequately enough to fully comprehend it, but those are moments which thrill my mind. I think they thrill most humans. And that's what I found in the sport. I've always found it absolutely thrilling and heart-stopping. And in Uruguay, to put into perspective, that's a million out of a population of about three million. It was an unforgettable day on the streets of Montevideo, that's for sure. What's the most important lesson that your father taught you? Accept people, help people, and be empathetic to people. He was a social worker, and he was very, I guess nowadays you'd have to consider him to be a far-left type of thinker. I have no problem with that, because I am too. There are challenges in life that people need a hand with, and that's... Uh, Uh, I've, I've tried, I've tried to do that. It might not be necessarily reaching out and giving a hand, so to speak, to the homeless or the helpless. I embrace that also. But I've always tried to do my job respecting the other side of the table, which in many cases were journalists and owners and executives who weren't exactly sympathetic to my calling. Uh, what do we have to talk to the media for? You know, the devil with them. Um, but always try to see the other point of view. And very few people are right or wrong. The world is not Manichaean. The world is gray. That's, I think, what I took out of my upbringing. My mother wasn't quite the same way, but I think I got a little more. I walked away with a little more from, from, from my father. I have my days, though. I have my days. <laughs> not so easy. Tell me about the when you transition from New York Jets and then you start your full-time involvement with soccer. I worked for the Jets for seven years during the Joe Namath era, which was beyond a dream for a young guy. I was in my 20s and then into my 30s. And where else would you want to be? Joe Namath, the New York Jets, the NFL was huge even then. Might not be what it is today, but it was absolutely huge then. But I always, I always harbored a love for soccer. And I think what led to my move to the New York Cosmos was I had, I had spent seven years working with a superstar. It's very hard in, in, nowadays for people to realize how big a name Joe Namath was. This is an era of Tom Brady and Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers and, and, and Cam Newton and so forth with the crazy glasses and the clothes. Joe Namath was just as big as any of them. 
and handling him and making sure that I was I was the assistant in the PR department, making sure that he was well represented and he was well, I'm going to say protected, uh, took some work and some sensitivity. And I, I, I guess I learned some of that. And I think, I think the cosmos may have, you'd have to ask other people, may have seen that here was a youngish guy who's got an experience with stars. They had signed Pelé and, um, I never applied for a job with the Cosmos. I never even thought of the Cosmos. But one day, they trained at, they trained at Hofstra on one side of the parking lot. The Jets, we had our training center uh, when it was on Long Island at Hempstead, the Weeb Bank Training Center. So we were on one side of the parking lot. The Cosmos were on the other side of the parking lot. I had looked over there and there's, there's Pele practicing. Oh, that's pretty, that's, that's pretty cool. You know, I got, there's Joe Namath over here and I got Pele over there. Which one do I, do I watch? Cause I, I'm personally kind of, uh, man, I knew I, I was working for the Jets and that was fine, but you can't, you can't, uh, ignore the fact that across the way is Pele in 1975. One day somebody walks across the parking lot and asks me if I would uh, like to talk about a job with the Cosmos, which I did. They hired me, and, the, and there we go, which was, you know, the, the right move to make for me at that time. Paint the picture for me. Who were the Cosmos back then? They were a team that started in 1971 in the NASL League, which was struggling mightily. A team which played at Hofstra. I would never have, I would not predict that they would have gone out of business or failed, but I'm not so sure I'd predict that the roots were really down in the NASL at that point in time. There were some decent teams, there were some, some good teams, and there were some, some quality ownership and so forth, but it was not established. It was not an established thing at that point, and I don't think it's remotely over the top to say that the signing of Pelé saved that league and ignited what we're sitting through now in the 21st century. I know some people who are younger don't view it that way, but I'm going to say with a little bit of arrogance, I was there. And I know what it was like, and I know what it's like now, and I know who did it. It was Pelé, it was Beckenbauer. The Cosmos were on the fringes, at best, of New York sports. The Mets had won a World Series in 69. The Jets and Giants were huge. Knicks were huge back then. Cosmos, at best, a note at the end of what used to be the agate columns in a, in a newspaper. Uh, so contextually, I would say that, uh, that that's what that's what I would that's what I would say the Cosmos were. Signing a Pelé changed that literally overnight with the chaotic press conference at the Twenty One Club and so forth in early June of '75. But the NASL only had six teams in 1969; barely survived. I'm not even sure anybody fully knows how it survived at this at this point. But through the sheer orneriness and passion of Phil Woosnam and Clive Toy, Dick Cecil, a guy that, whose name has uh, unfortunately been uh, forgotten. I bring it up because I spoke to him last week, one of the original people in the NASL. Uh, Lamar Hunt, Jack Kent Cook, uh, another name from long ago. These are the people who kept, kept it alive until there could be a Pelé. So you have to realize there were some real, real, real dips. It has not been always an upward trajectory. I don't think that it was fully appreciated. I don't think any of us fully appreciated what the Pelé effect actually would be, that it would be as enormous as it was, that it would be to the point where on a home game at Giants Stadium on the same day that the uh, Mets and Yankees were home, unusually, we drew more people at Giants Stadium for a soccer game than the combined attendance at Shea and Yankee. 
the Pelé effect was was uh, beyond comprehension. People don't realize, I don't think I'm wildly off base on what I'm going to say. In the 70s, Pelé was so famous, I would say that there were only two other people in the world as a personality who could equal him. And one was Frank Sinatra, and one is Muhammad Ali. That's how huge Pelé was. My opinion, I'll go out on a limb here against some of my modern-day colleagues, way bigger than David Beckham, way bigger. He was a world cultural icon at that point. Could Fran- If Franz Beckenbauer had come first, would he have had the same effect? I don't think so. Do you remember the first time you met Pele? Yes, I do. I met him in his office at 75 Rockefeller Plaza. As fine a gentleman as he could possibly be, we got to know each other a little bit. I explained to him what I was going to try to do. And uh, he and his people made certain that I understood what he needed. Never in order. Never anything. Never anything like make sure you take care of me. Nothing like that. Just here's how... Here's how Pelé likes to do things. And I got to tell you, I've had, I've had the privilege of meeting a lot of famous people and working with, uh, you know, a few pretty big sized athletes in my lifetime. Greatest guy ever. Never gave me a hard time. One minor one, but that was mostly on my side of the table (laughs) than his. Uh, a gentleman, uh, never saw him refuse an autograph request. Never saw him do anything remotely distant from fans. We did have to protect him almost physically at times. He couldn't walk in the front door of a press conference. He'd never make it to the podium. The the, the passion and, and furor around him was incredible. So operationally, there were things we had to do to, to make sure that he was well cared for. And, and some of them were matters of safety, I got to tell you. What's the most memorable moment that you have with Pelé? One of them's funny. We played an exhibition game in 1976 in San Antonio at a place called Alamo Stadium. Not the Alamo Dome that modern people might be aware of. Alamo Stadium, small concrete bowl, very low walls. It was clear what was going to happen when the game was over. Absolutely beyond doubt. So Pelé, we always traveled with a security man who was attached to, to Pelé. I guess nowadays you'd call him a body man. So we, we had a scheme going that no one knew about. Our team knew about it. But at about the 83rd minute, Pelé would just work his way to the Cosmos side of the, the bench side, and he would just keep going. Where myself and his security guy, a fellow named Pedro Garay, we would grab him and before anyone knew what happened, run him up the tunnel and put him into a car which was waiting at the head of the tunnel because we knew there was no way we're getting him off the field safe and sound after the game. And sure enough, when the game ended, I was informed by people who stayed, it was quite a scene on the field. We couldn't afford to do that with Pelé. He understood. He didn't try, he didn't try to, to say no or that he was un, he kind of knew. He'd been all around the world. He knew what could happen. And he just kept, I remember seeing his eyes. He's working his way over to the near sideline and son of a gun. He just took off and we went up the tunnel before, uh, before anybody knew what was happening. We we're just laughing in the car because at least he was safe and sound. And we did win the game. There's another more, much more poignant memory about Pele, which will always be in my treasure trove of, uh, of things I've been able to, to see, and that's after his farewell game in 1977, half for Santos, half for the Cosmos on October 1st, 77, in the pouring rain at Giant Stadium. Game ends, 
and he's carried off the field by his teammates and so forth. Uh, if you're if you're a soccer lover, you may have seen the photos. You can certainly find them on uh, on the internet. You can probably even find it on YouTube. So he's taken around the stadium, and by by pre-design again, his security man Pedro, he's right in the middle of those pictures, made sure that Pele was carried in the proper direction, was fairly well choreographed, and deposited at a specific location in one of the end zones. Again, so that he could, he had two things to do. One is to get out safely. And the other was to do a post-game interview with Frank Gifford on ABC. So he's deposited at that end zone, and he himself comes running up the tunnel. If anybody remembers Giant Stadium, there was a tunnel in each end zone. This was the non-locker room end zone. And he came running up that tunnel where there was a car, myself, and his wife, and a driver, waiting to take him around the stadium to the point where the post-game interview was. Remember, it's pouring rain. He's a soaked, drowned rat like all of us were at that at that point in the day. And we bundle him into the back seat of the car with Rose, his wife, and me. And he breaks down crying uncontrollably. It finally, I think, hit him that the career is over. This is my farewell game. And we had to wait a little bit to drive around the stadium. But by the time we got to Frank Gifford... He was Pelé again and did a great, a great interview. Uh, but that was a, a poignant and private moment, which was not seen, not filmed. Nowadays, that could never possibly happen because there'd be cameras everywhere. Uh, all alone, all alone, him and his wife. And I was there because I was the shepherd. That's all. It was not a private moment with me or anything, but I just happened to be the only witness. How did that make you feel? Very, uh, I must say, very, very privileged, um, a little bit of a voyeur, and a little bit special. Wow. This is one that you never can take away from me, to have seen something backstage like this. It's really, really meaningful. Much more meaningful than the public performance, so to speak, raising of trophies and so forth. I was there when we won the soccer bowl and, and so forth. But this was, this was a really, really special moment, only, only for him. I, I don't even know if he, would, if he would remember that, but I've never forgotten it. Hey, just a quick update. Coffin Football is now presented by Eleven New York, a football brand of high-quality apparel that includes cotton tees, French terry bottoms, and my favorite, socks made out of merino wool. All products are made in Los Angeles and in North Carolina. Please visit 11newyork.com to view it all. And it's a special for Coffee and Football listeners. For a 15% off your next purchase, use discount code CF11. That is CF and then number 11. Thanks, guys. Just to kind of get a bit of a perspective on it, because these players, and it wasn't only Pelé, there was Beckenbauer, there was Carlos Alberto, there was Kinaglia, and on other teams there would be Cruyff, uh, there was George Best. Um, mm. Bobby Moore, Jeff Hurst, uh, uh, yeah, I think you mentioned Cruyff, uh, it was a lot of people. And uh, in New York City specifically, I mean, there were there were like rock stars and there was a lot of reports and talks about, you know, the parties of those days and the Studio 54 days and, and, and so on. What's your perspective? Well, if everything that was in the book and the movie actually had happened, I don't think any of us would have survived. Yes, it was. Yes, it was the 70s. Yes, it was rock and roll time. Uh, but I th I would 
say that by and large the myth is a little bigger than the reality, but that's okay. A little myth making isn't isn't all bad. But it was it was a wild time. We were all youngish uh, to one degree or another. We were prominent in New York. We had some money in our pockets, and it was the mid seventies, which you'd have to be old enough to remember to uh, to appreciate. It was a, it was a pretty wild time, pretty wild time, and we did pretty wild things, such as. Some of the parties were pretty good. <laughs> you got to give me one story. I'm not going to give you any stories on that stuff, no. <laughs> um, it, it was a very free and freeing group of guys at that time. I can't give you anything um, salacious or illegal because I'm not really, uh, that really wasn't where, where I was at, at that time. It was an era. Remember, It had been the Joe Namath era with the fur coat on Broadway and the front page, uh, the, the, the cover of Sports Illustrated. It was a time of great stars. It was a time, just a few years later, the Rangers had signed two Swedish players who became Broadway darlings as well. Uh, it was that type of, of, uh, of free, wild era in New York, in New York City sports. Walt Frazier with, uh, was it a Rolls Royce or a Bentley? I can't remember. Emblematic of the times. And the Cosmos, the Cosmos were part of that scene. Absolutely. Part of the party scene, part of the social scene. The owners of the team were Warner Communications, but the, the executives who, uh, made the big, uh, the big time decisions were Amit and Nestle Erdogan, who just happened to be the heads of Atlantic Records, who just happened to have the greatest stable of R&B and rock stars that had probably ever been put together. Mick, Mick Jagger was at all the games. Well, not all the games, but he was he was in the locker room half the time. It's just, it, it's the setting we were in. It was a very, I, I guess the word I'm looking for, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's, I don't know if it's the 70s, but I'm going to use it anyway. I mean, it was a go-go era, and we were a go-go team. It's as close as you're going to get me. What did that era do for your career? Hmm, that's a very interesting question. Gave me a fount of memories, I'll say that, and put me on a trajectory, which I didn't realize at the time. I've never planned a, a move in my life. I, I'm very lucky, I'll touch wood on that, that I found things to do without having to do a lot of resume sending. Um, put me on a trajectory via Madison Square Garden, for whom I worked for five years after the demise of the Washington Diplomats, a direct route through a, a FIFA All-Star game at Giant Stadium and then onto the World Cup Organizing Committee in 1987, World Cup Bidding Committee at that time in 1987. So I'd, as I'd say my NASL era probably gave me the skills, the knowledge, and the connections to lead me to the next great challenge of my career, which was the 94 World Cup and uh, essentially back into soccer. I went to Madison Square Garden in 1980 because they had owned the diplomats, and when the diplomats folded, they hired me. At the, at the mothership on, on 31st Street. Uh, so I worked there for, for, for several years when soccer really wasn't a particularly viable option for me at that point. But it was, it was the connections and the, uh, just the awareness, the, 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 the ability to, 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 to swim in the sport that opened up the door for World Cup 94. Because I, I came to World Cup 94 during the bid and was there till, till we turned the lights out. And there's only, I think there's only, I think there's really only two of us who can say that. Starting around 87, you start the bidding process. Take me through that process, and then how did you build it up? Very different era <clears throat> than it is now. Much simpler, you call it naive era. 
The Federation decided they were going to bid for the World Cup. It really got underway heavily in 87, and, the, and uh, various people, including myself, were involved in formatting and writing the bid. I don't want to overplay my role because it was, I certainly wasn't the, the, the kingpin, any of that. Um, but I was an editor of the bid and putting the whole thing together and then, uh, and was the communications person for the bid and as, and tried to get as much publicity on this thing. Let me tell you, in 1987, <laughs> we're bidding for the World Cup. It was worse than pulling teeth to try to get anybody. And the continual question was, well, where will it be played? And it's not an it. Back then, it was 52 games in nine different cities. All the I could have just turned a tape on and answered most of the questions because the level of knowledge was so low. When we won the World Cup bid on July 4th, 1988, which came after very low-key lobbying and personal relationships among Gene Edwards, who was the former president of the Federation, Werner Fricker, who was the current president at, at, at that time, of the Federation, and with the support of Dr. Havelange from FIFA. That was an era when uh, when uh, that sort of pressure, that sort of guidance was successful. Um, we, 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 were, we were able to win the bid. But when the day that we won the bid, following the announcement, I had exactly five people to call from Zurich to get Werner Fricker on the phone with. Hard to believe. That, that would be unheard of, unheard of nowadays. There just wasn't the interest. So what we had to embark on doing right away after winning the World Cup bid was start to explain to Americans, to the cities through local television and radio. Again, remember, there's no internet. There's no social media. There's none of that stuff. We traveled around. We went to cities. We met with people. We did interviews. And this went on for, for a long, long time. And probably the greatest element in terms of a getting American awareness of the World Cup and beginning to understand a little bit about what it actually is was when we started the venue selection process. And that started, I think, in 19, early 1991. And we invited cities to make a presentation. And that created a lot of interest in a lot of cities in the United States to get this big event. And the, the ripple effect then, they got coverage in their newspapers and TV stations about this group of civic leaders who were trying to bring this event. And oh, by the way, if you haven't heard about the World Cup, here's what it is. That was a domestic, a domestic effort and the international effort, which I was also involved heavily with because I, I was extremely comfortable in international settings and having through the Cosmos years and so forth and through the bid years of 87 and 88 had gotten to know a lot of people overseas and I guess left, left them some sort of an impression that they would at least take my phone calls. Again, no, no email, but we were able to reach out to some people and slowly and painfully begin to change the idea that, oh my God, what has FIFA done? They've given the World Cup to a bunch of idiots who don't even know what the game is. We ultimately turned all of those things around, but it was a very, very difficult, very difficult situation, underappreciated by people who've come into the game a little bit later. There, 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 was, there was no media landscape ready for us. So we had to create our own, which we did. And I, that's one of, that, I'm pretty proud of that, but I certainly didn't do it alone. I mean, Alan Rothenberg was one of the great personalities you could have ever had to sell the sport. It was a big sell job. And not a fake sell job, not trying to, not trying to, to, to quote sell anybody on anything, to explain to them what was going to happen to your city, all the good things that are going to happen. And it all did. We said we would make soccer history and we would leave a legacy for soccer. And we did. The World Cup comes around 
How do you remember if you would pick a few moments that you really carry with you? I'd say the biggest personal moment that I had was at about 6 a.m. on uh, the opening day of the World Cup in Chicago. I got to Soldier Field extremely early. The president was coming. There were a lot of things to do. I wasn't the venue press officer. I was the, the head press officer for the organizing committee. So I was in Chicago for that, for the Congress and then the opening game. And I was working with the uh, the uh, White House press pool. That was what I took on for that day around uh, President Clinton. I walked it onto the edge of the field, down the tunnel on the edge of the field. About 6 a.m. It was hot. It was already hot in Chicago then. And I remember standing there, very emotional, thinking, it's here. We've really done it. There's going to be a game. Never forget that. It still gives me chills. Stadium was empty. Field was empty. But man, what a, what a long run for seven years to get to this date. And there's going to be a World Cup in the United States. Never forget that. It meant a lot to me uh, at that time because not all the days were easy. And you get to that point where in sports, it finally does come down to what's going to happen between the lines. And here I am on the field at Soldier Field. Just Where else in the entire universe would you want to be that day? Uh, I've, I've had that thrill a couple of times. But boy, that... That's a real one. Let me give you, there's another very funny incident. It's not, it's not unknown, uh, but it's illustrative of how good we were. I got no shame about saying how good we were at that organizing committee. A game at Giant Stadium. Was it Bulgaria, Mexico? Don't remember. Goalpost breaks. Crossbar breaks. What do you do? We had another goalpost in the end zone, and within about five or six minutes, a new goalpost was out, and that people around the the media around the world said, "Oh my God, they actually had thought of this. They have no idea how much we had thought of, but but that was just an, an in your face on the field, right in front of you demonstration of how good we were, how good we were. Very proud of all that at that time as as. I don't know. I don't know whether that's a, uh, whether we should be more humble or not. But we were good, and uh, uh, the world did recognize it. And it went. It, it, it's still it's still referenced as one of the one of the great World Cups. Final wasn't so great, but we didn't play in the final. <laughs> Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. 
So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Now you've worked through the World Cup, which is several years worth of work. Where did you see yourself there? Like, where are you standing? I mean, you're at the top of world soccer and in your career from there, where do you take it? I, I wanted to stay involved and fate intervened, completely unaware that something had been going on. I had a meeting in the lobby of a hotel in Dallas, very late in the World Cup. Our headquarters was in Dallas, even though the final, then we all went to LA for the final. Meeting with a gentleman who asked me if when this thing was over, would I like to get involved with the Japanese bid for 2002. So that took probably a nanosecond of thought. And I said, yes, but this came completely. Had no idea what Stephen wanted to talk to me about, but I, I knew Stephen Dixon. Unfortunately, he's, he's gone now. Uh, a marketing major domo with FIFA. And he said, well, I have recommended you to the Japanese organizing committee. So I said, great. Never heard another word. Never heard another word until January of 1995. When I, I remember talking to my wife, well, maybe, maybe I'll hear something in September. Well, not September, maybe October. Finally got a phone call. Maybe it was around Christmas time, I guess, of, of 94, uh, from uh, a gentleman named Hiroyuki Hamaguchi. And he wanted me to come to Japan. And I ended up working seven years for the Japanese Bidding and Organizing Committee. So I was able to fulfill what I'd hoped for was to stay involved at the FIFA level, World Cup level. But I'm the luckiest. It may have been Lou Gehrig who said he's the luckiest man alive, but I think I might be. It just, it, this stuff just, just fell at me. Throughout those years, having been on the inside of these bidding processes, and you've seen kind of the rise and the fall down of FIFA, what were your thoughts when the news started really breaking about what was going on at FIFA, what had been going on for so many years? It certainly didn't surprise me. I'll say that I wasn't taken unawares. I was a little surprised at, honestly, f- how blatant some of it had been. I wasn't aware. I've read some of the books, and we know what's been happening in the in the Brooklyn court cases and so forth on the corruption. That um, was was pretty pretty blatant. I had seen some things in my time, which were pretty blatant, but th- the scale of it surprised me. But the actual f- uh, fact that there were shenanigans certainly didn't, didn't surprise me, particularly in the in the later bidding process. I worked on 94 U.S. I worked on 2002 Japan. I worked on South Africa, which which we didn't win. But there was some very strange stuff uh, going on behind the scenes and all of that. It's been pretty. It's been pretty well, pretty well documented. But it be it it, it gave it it did give you it gave me the feeling that. No matter what we, I, I also worked on twenty twenty two for the U.S. Um, talking about behind the scenes stuff there, which I wasn't party to, but we all know about now with the, the way that turned out. Um, I, I got the I got the this somewhat depressing feeling that no matter what we do, the game isn't the, the bidding game isn't being played here. If you know what I mean. The bid book or the guarantees from this and that and the projections of of money and impact. Unfortunately, that really isn't how the game is played. Um, but I think that's uh, work. I think that's working its way out now. 
What were some of the situations that you came across that in, in retrospect? Well, it wasn't so much in retrospect as, as in uh, right uh, on the face of it, uh, demands being made by, by various people, um, bribes being asked for by various people. None of, none, none of it directed toward me, but I was aware. I saw the documentation and, and uh, you know, was aware of it because frequently I'd be asked about how, to resp- how do we deal with these things. Um, how did you deal with it? I can tell you two things for certain, and that's, I'll just leave it with those two things. Um, the United States for 94 paid no one, bribed no one, did nothing. Do you know what our main lobbying event was? We held a small cocktail party in December of 1987 for the executive committee in a lounge at a hotel in Zurich. That was it. Nobody was jetting around the world and meeting Nelson Mandela and meeting uh, Ronald Reagan. You know, and, uh, yeah, I mean, there was an Oval Office meeting with Ronald Reagan, but that's almost, I'd say, that's kind of pro forma when any country's bidding for one of these things. But there wasn't a whole bunch of stuff like that. Again, in, for 2022, Sunil Gulati did nothing, nothing that would be remotely considered um, inappropriate. We, we, don't, we don't deal that way. Maybe we should <laughs> at the international sports level. I don't know. We've read about Atlanta had some issues. Salt Lake City Olympics had some issues. But I, I, we, we generally don't do stuff that way. Um, there are a lot of pressures put on. This is, it, it, it's an enormous, an enormous, uh, um, e- event, an enormous undertaking to bid for and to stage a World Cup. And, and, um, I, I will tell you, I, I know categorically that governments do get involved. I don't, I'm not saying that about the United States government because we, we really are quite different. We don't, we don't underwrite sports in this country. There's no ministry of sports. We're very different that way. And that had to be explained too. That no, the government's not going to give you a billion dollars. We, we don't do it that way like other countries might to help underwrite costs. Um, but some governments do get involved and they pressure. They pressure delegates and so forth. There are, there is an example which I'm going to keep completely anonymous, but it's true, where a a foreign office grant was made to a nation that had an executive committee member uh, in a timely manner. Let me put it that way. In other words, shortly before the vote, Th- things like that go on. I don't think the average fan knows about it. I don't think the average fan cares about it. But there's a few people in the world, some of the, some of the writers about the, the bribery and the match fixing. There's, there's a small group of us who are kind of interested in things like that. Uh, but, but overall, I think we can, uh, we can be pretty happy with the actual tournaments because that's when the first ball gets kicked, the whole world comes to a stop. And that, that, that's where some of the beauty is. And I think FIFA might have lost sight of a little bit of that. And it, it became more about the process than the game. But that's working itself out now. Knowing what you know today, is there anything you would have done differently? Not a thing. I do it exactly the same all over again. Been able to see a lot of great stuff and meet a lot of great people, have a lot of fun. I've always said, um, if, if, um, if I fall over dead right now, just say he had a good run because, It has been.
I typically shoot a set of rapid-fire questions uh, towards the end, uh, but this should be pretty brief. Feel free to, to elaborate. Um, what's the proudest moment in your career? World Cup final of 1994, July 17th. We did it. We've done it. Rose Bowl's full. The media is where they ought to be, and everything's working. What's the most important characteristic to be successful in your position? Honesty. Never never lie. Never shade the truth. Maybe you can be circumspect. Maybe you can be less than forthcoming. But the whole thing comes down to trust. Who's a uh, soccer business person you look up to that you think people should follow or read up on? That's a real good question. And I would have, I would say Alan Rothenberg, but those days are those days are, are are behind at the moment, and I'm not sure I can answer that in the in the current atmosphere right now. Um, you have to admire what Don Garber has done at MLS. Who's the most well-known soccer contact in your phone? Sunil Gulati. I know you're an avid reader. We just discussed here uh, offline before get, uh, getting started here that you have. A lot of books. If you would make a couple of book recommendations, what would those be? If you haven't read Friday Night Lights by Bissinger about high school football in Texas, you must. If you haven't read Jane Levy's book on Mickey Mantle, you absolutely must. And if you haven't read Among the Thugs about the English hooliganism uh, 25 years ago, you must. And if you haven't read... Carl Ova Kanausgaard's five volumes, I'm waiting for volume six this year, titled My Struggle, You Must. Out of those, which one would you say has impacted you the most? I'm going to say Jane Levy's book on Mickey Mantle, because it ex- it didn't explode the myth, but it was, a, it was an unvarnished view of an actual man who had a lot of troubles and was not necessarily equipped to deal with them all. And I thought it was extremely instructive about what fame and iconic status can do to someone. I, I took, I was quite, quite moved by that book. I mean, I'm from the Mickey Mantle era. I saw him play and so forth. And we all knew about Mickey as a bit of a hellraiser. But this book was extremely uh, provocative that way of, of, of how things can go off the rails for athletes who aren't necessarily able to to deal with it. I don't know what Mickey Mantle would have been in the 21st century with uh, with uh, social media. Do you have a film recommendation? Well, a film recommendation. I'm not a big movie person, but I can't tell you how many times I've watched Fargo. Absolutely spectacular. And I... I have never yet understood the full impact of Pulp Fiction, but what a movie. Nothing in the current era. <laughs> Nothing in the current era. You get to have dinner with three people in the soccer world. Let's assume language is not a barrier. They can be past or present. Who are the three? I would say that one of them would be Sunil Gulati because it's the architect of where we are. We can put the criticism, the current era criticism aside because what he's done for the game is unparalleled. Second one would be Pelé. And I would be inclined to want to sit down one more time and talk to Johan Cruyff, who I knew pretty well, but there was always a bit of 
when you're working with someone, it's different from when you're not, when you can just be friends over dinner. I think that will be a fascinating discussion. And not everybody would get along at that table, which would make it all the more interesting. What's a favorite spot you would take him to? There's a little restaurant up on 53rd Street called La Gioconda, which is completely unknown. It's a neighborhood Italian, always good, always the same. And I don't mean it's boring, but it's very consistent. Great little place. You can stay all night and eat good and they don't bug you. Sounds good. Um, I'm going to deviate here a little bit, actually, because I didn't ask you too much about uh, Johan Cruyff. You, you've been close to him. You've you've known him. He's this larger than than life figure who who made a tremendous impact as a player later on as a coach. Uh, we we still see his footprint, and especially with Barcelona and what they've done over the past several years. You knew him. How, how would you describe him? He's a challenging individual. One of his favorite expressions was, "That's impossible. That is impossible." Give him you know, the, the orders of the day, so to speak, here's what we're going to do. But that is impossible. Coach would say, we're going to play with this and that and that formation. But it is impossible. You you had to get used to him being a very challenging individual and somewhat self-focused at all times, but absolutely brilliant. And challenge, by when I say challenging, he wasn't always wrong. He wasn't always wrong. Uh, he had a, trem- what a keen mind for the game. I mean, he's in in my experience, having seen so many of the great ones play, uh, he's he's right up there in the in the top five. I mean, I know we're in an era of Messi and Ronaldo and so forth, but um, boy, don't take anything away from Johan Cruyff in the seventies. Absolutely, maybe the equal of Pelé with the ball at his feet, and boy, could he control a game too. Just a, ge- a genius, a genius player, but could be could be thorny to deal with. Where do you think that challenging character, what would you attribute that to? He's a, he was an extremely self-confident individual, as I have found many of the Dutch to be in a national characteristic. People who fight back, the history of the Dutch people and, uh, does include some fairly devastating times of being overrun and whatnot. And I think there's a little bit of a characteristic there of, uh, of, uh, don't push me around. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you what I think a little bit bluntly. Uh, not every Dutch person has been like that, but I have found in some of the media and so forth, they're very, they're very forthright. Very, and Cruyff, uh, forthright, uh, and at times, at times difficult. But you forgave it all because when he had the ball at his feet, you didn't care. He was also cooperative. I mean, he did, he did, he did what he needed to do, but frequently there was a little bit of an interlude between, between the request and the, and the fulfillment. Do you have anything you would like to recommend? You know what I recommend? We all ought to calm down a little bit. Listen, we don't have to agree, but we don't, uh, we got, we got to, we got to stop the discussion. At all levels, I mean, all of a sudden, we don't qualify for the World Cup, and you would have thought Sunil Gulati was the devil incarnate. I mean, we just seem to go from from A to Z very quickly. Now, on any topic, I'm not making a political comment here, but it seems to be from oh, red meat's bad for you. Eat more vegetables, you know. But where do you get your protein? There's there's a big middle. There's a big middle which I kind of like to go back to. Last question. Who do you think I should interview on this podcast? You should interview Werner Roth, former captain of the Cosmos, came out of the German-American League over here, over in Queens. Eloquent, eloquent speaker. 
about the Cosmos days, the arrival of Pele, and to me more important, because I do feel myself at this stage of my life as a bit of a historian desk pounder for the game, very eloquent speaker about what the community leagues meant and who they were. It wasn't just Germans. It was an entire thing on Sundays for your whole community. Werner Roth would be one. You must, you must get Alan Rothenberg. And you should, and I can maybe help you do it, uh, speak uh, to Dick Cecil, founder of the Atlanta Chiefs, the original Atlanta Chiefs, and the man, one of the only ones still alive who was there when the USA and NPSL merged to become the NASL. That is now nearly 50, in fact, it is 50 years ago. Uh, Dick Cecil is a fount of stories. I would absolutely take you up on that and, and appreciate it very much. I can I can get introductions to all of them for you. Fantastic. Well, Jim, huge thank you from my end. I, I tremendously appreciate this. I didn't know exactly what I was getting into, and I knew there, you know, that there was quite a bit of good history there. But I mean, this has been overwhelming. So I truly thank you. I've learned quite a bit by sitting here with you. I wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe on iTunes and write a review. I would really appreciate it as we grow this podcast one listener at a time. If you have any feedback or ideas, feel free to send me an email at sebastian at coffeeandfootball.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. It will be another amazing one. Thanks again and have a great week. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.